Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Shobhan Xavier. In each new episode, we chat with the author of a new book that has been published and is relevant to the field of Islamic studies. In today's episode, we are joined by Sebastian Pronge, who is an Associate Professor of History at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Monsoon Islam, Trade and Faith on the Medieval Malabar Coast published by Cambridge University Press for their Cambridge Oceanic History series, provides a fascinating window into the Muslim world of medieval 12th to 16th century Malabar coast and the development of Islam that was defined by significant trade networks. Pranj conceptualizes this particular development of Muslim communities on the Malabar coast as monsoon Islam. Subverting any notions that Islam developed systematically or through organized political efforts in this region, the book uses a history of the pepper trade across the Indian Ocean to map spatial developments, such as of the mosques and ports, and the early Muslim trading communities who inhabited these realms. We have before us the global history of monsoon Islam that utilizes trade networks to capture far more complex cross-cultural exchanges that included kingship, religious, textual, Sufi, and political networks. The latter dynamics led to instances of negotiated establishment of legal and religious codes, as well as familial and economic ties. For instance, the book highlights how legal norms or religious practices became localized and translated to a new context by minority Muslims within a predominantly Hindu society, such as in mosque architecture or marriage practices. Pranj's detailed study asks us to think of both global and local processes that led to the formation of a cosmopolitan and transoceanic monsoon Islam, and thus complicates how we study the spread of Islam across diverse regions in South Asia and the vital role of traders, scholars, and saints. The study's deep engagement with diverse historical sources and its beautifully written analysis makes it an accessible and critical read for scholars interested in the world of Islam in the Indian Ocean and South Asia, as well as Islamic economics, politics, and history broadly. Now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Sebastian Pranj. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Shabana. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about your book, Monsoon Islam, Trade and Faith on the Medieval Malabar Coast. We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that with our guests, we like to know something about their intellectual journey and really what led to this process of writing this fantastic book. So I wonder if you could share some of that with us. How far back do you want me to go? Um, Let's see. (laughs) I started being interested in the world of medieval trade really when I was doing my bachelor. I was doing a joint degree in 
English and history at Goldsmith College in London. And at some point during that degree, we had to do an interdisciplinary project. So I compared the travelogues of Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta, both as kind of literary works and as historical sources. And that first exposed me to kind of the immense reach of these commercial networks that were spanning the the medieval world all across Eurasia and, and into Africa as well, of course. So then I expanded on that when I did um, a master's in the economic history department at the London School of Economics, where I looked specifically at the trans-Saharan slave trade um, to understand its business model. And I was especially interested in the role of slave agents. So slaves, of course, were the, the commodity of, the, of this trade, but there were also some, a very elite few, who themselves became agents and active participants in the trade. And that fascinated me and provided kind of a basis for a study I did during that time. And so then my idea for my PhD was to find another Muslim long-distance trade circuit in the medieval world and kind of the best analogy I could find to crossing the Sahara Desert was crossing the Indian Ocean at some of the kind of similar structural constraints. And then I eventually settled on the pepper trade, which brought me to, to India, specifically to Kerala in, in Southwest India. And once I'd settled on that as a case study, then SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, kind of became the obvious place to do that work. So the the book started as kind of this you know hardcore economic history project which actually at the time was looked on with some suspicion by my advisors at SOAS there was uh, Daud Ali as well as uh, William Clarence Smith and Avril Powell um and then through their gentle guidance I eventually came to recognize really the centrality that the social world um including, of course, religion, played in, in every aspect of how pre-modern commerce functioned. And then it took me several more years after finishing my dissertation to really come to terms with this relationship between trade and faith and how to write about them in a connected way. So if you told me at the beginning of my PhD or even a couple of years in that this work would eventually result in a book that has Islam in the title, I would have been very, very surprised. So all of which is to say I'm a bit of an interloper, a trespasser in your world of Islamic studies, and I'm really grateful that I've been welcomed to join in the conversations that make up this really diverse field and also being able to speak about the book today. Yeah, I mean, I think hearing your story and how you got to writing this book, it really provides an entry or a window into kind of the interdisciplinary work that you're doing, but also this navigation between the economy, trade, and also faith. So I'm really excited to talk about this book with you. Um, I'm really curious also about your method, because some of the sources you're engaging with are in various different languages, from Tamil to, to Arabic to Malayalam. So I wonder if you could walk us through some of your uh, work that you did in terms of getting the sources that you did and the way it went about kind of uh, influencing your dissertation and then your book. Yeah, and, you know, 
the methodology was just born out of um, some real frustrations that I faced early on in the in the project. So, you know, many times these kind of histories, especially medieval histories, as you start with the sources and then you kind of find the the topic, the story you're interested in. And I had done it the other way around. I'd kind of started with this, you know, as I said, this kind of economic history problem of trying to understand how this long distance trade in the Indian Ocean worked. And I had identified the pepper trade as something I wanted to work on. And then as I was uh, you know, starting to learn languages, as I was starting to come to terms with the sources, I really realized how few sources there are. And this was not going to be a project that I could do solely looking at India, from India, and that this Indian Ocean dimension was going to be really crucial, not just in the in the trade relations, in the trade networks that I was going to study, but also in terms of, of my sources. So I would say that probably most of my sources actually are in other parts of the Indian Ocean world and in places like uh, Yemen, where I worked for, for a while. Um, yeah, the, the Cairo Geniza features prominently, um, travelogues from, from all over the Indian Ocean world. So really, my methodology was born out of the necessity to kind of trace these incredibly mobile merchants. And, you know, of course, merchants are not primarily interested in producing records mm -hmm. for posterity. So they are really tricky actors to find as opposed to, say, um, you know, religious elites, which are much more likely to be um, literate and engage in in written discourses or um, political elites where we have inscriptions and other sources. Is this then part of the reason that the book is really nicely structured around space of, let's say, the sea or the palace or the mosque? Is this partly because of the struggle that you're having in terms of some of the literary um, sources that you're engaging with? Because um, now that I think about it in terms of the way the book is structured, it really speaks to some of the things that you were saying right now about your methodology. Yeah, I think in terms of the structure of the book, it's really an attempt to to look at these Muslim communities on the medieval Malabar coast um, in kind of the different aspects that that defined them as communities. So the chapter on the port is really looking at the economic history. Um, the chapter on the mosque is looking much more at the religious and social dimensions. And then the chapter on the palace at their political relationships, both with rulers on the Malabar coast as well as in other parts of the Indian Ocean. And then the final chapter on the sea is about transoceanic networks. And in a sense, it mirrors the previous three chapters that it again looks at, um, at, at kind of the economic dimension, the religious dimension, and the political dimension, but now writ large across the whole um, Indian Ocean realm as far as I could reconstruct it. Mm, okay. Um, I guess I have to ask, and a lot of the book is structured around making this argument of a monsoon Islam. So maybe we should go to that first. And so what do you mean by a monsoon Islam? And how is this um, concept or this idea that you're building um, different from, let's say, other Indo-Islamic um, communities or regions that are developing at the time, right? So what is it about the Malabar coast that's important and the history that you're trying to highlight that's important for the field? 
Yeah, so I think the Malabar Coast is really a, a case study of this broader phenomenon that that I label monsoon Islam in the book. So it's a term that I use to describe what I see as a distinct trajectory of Islamic history that developed within this trading world of the mid medieval Indian Ocean that I'm trying to trace. So just to be clear, I'm not saying this is some kind of formal school of law or coherent theology. Rather, I think that um, monsoon Islam is a way to understand the development of certain legal interpretations and socio-religious practices that emerged among Muslim merchant communities across the Indian Ocean. So it's during this period that the book looks at, roughly the 12th to 16th century, that Muslims really came to dominate um, long-distance Indian Ocean trade, especially the, the very, very lucrative spice trade, but in many of the spice-producing regions, they were living in diaspora settings as um, trading communities um, within larger non-Muslim communities on the Malabar coast within a largely Hindu society. So what I'm interested in is in the role of merchants as the um, in, 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 in propagating Islam and at the same time how these different settings, this localization of Islam, changed their own understandings of their faith, whether it's in a legal context or a ritual context, or just in terms of living together with different faith communities. And one of the stories you use is of a South Indian king, and you use the story throughout. And even though it's um, a folklore or myth, which you kind of contend with as a his historian, right? How do you deal with the story? But I wonder if you could tell us the story and why it plays a critical role um, of Teraman uh, Perumal, if I'm saying it right. I apologize. Um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so the story, just to sum it up quickly, is that there was this uh, this legendary Kerala king, um, Teraman Perumal, the ruler of the Chera dynasty, which was kind of the last um, dynasty that ruled over um, Kerala as a unified political entity, really during the period that I'm looking at. In fact, it was broken up in lots of different competing polities. So this king, the story goes, um, had a dream one night in which he saw the miracle of the splitting of the moon, which was explained to him later by some visiting Muslim pilgrims. Um, he questioned them. He started learning about Islam and eventually traveled back with them to, um, to the Hijaz, where he was converted, so the story goes, um, to Islam at the hands of the prophet himself. And then after some years, he wanted to go back to, to Malabar, back to Kerala, but he died on his way. And um, as he was on his deathbed, he instructed a group of Arab Muslims to go back and propagate his new faith in the region. So what I'm interested in is the kind of work that this, this narrative of this legendary Chera king, who is said to have been the first um, Indian Muslim, later on did on the Malabar coast. And I'm looking at um, different, different roles that it plays. One is um, as a way to bridge... Um, uh, the, the presence of 
Muslims within this overwhelmingly Hindu and very um, Brahmin-centered society, but also the work it did for the Muslim communities themselves in legitimizing and valorizing uh, the, the preeminence of um, Arab uh, Muslims, especially those claiming Syed status, as kind of the religious elite, um, the religious leaders of the Muslim community. And so this story is something that you bring up throughout and um, it comes up in discussion of law and comes up in discussions of kind of the story of the first mosque. Um, But before we get to some of these stories, I wonder if you could kind of walk us through what um, context of like, you know, the religious or the ethnic topography. You've mentioned caste, which is one, I think, important theme that comes up a lot. But what is the context of, let's say, these Arab Muslims who are coming into um, the Malabar coast? What would they be encountering in terms of religious diversity or of other ethnic communities? And what is their location as kind of minority Muslims that are now confronted, confronted with kind of constructing an Islam in this Malabar coast? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think really the quickest way to imagine these these port cities on the on the medieval Malabar coast, places such as as Cochin or Calicut, um, is to use this very overused term of um, cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. because that's that really captures the nature of these places. So they were incredibly diverse. You would have merchants from. Um, East Africa, from Arabia, Persia, other parts of India, from Maldives, Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, Chinese merchants, um, and all kinds of religious um, denominations interacting for the purposes of the pepper trade, right? Kerala, um, the Malabar coast, was really the only place in the medieval world where you could get black pepper, which was the most important ingredient of the Indian Ocean spice trade. And on top of that, the Malabar coast was also at the kind of intersection of these monsoon trade routes. So it was a hugely important um, part of the world for these um, Indian Ocean merchants. And the port cities clearly reflected that. So in terms of the, the Muslim communities, we have the, the so-called foreign Muslims and, you know, perhaps other ways to think about them would be as you know, expats or mobile Muslims. So these were people usually of Arab or Persian descent, but also Africans, Muslims from Southeast Asia, um, and then local Muslims known as Mapalas. And just to be clear, this, this distinction is something that is made very clearly in you know, all the sources we have, um, both Arab sources uh, local um, sources, later European sources. So this is not something we are kind of imposing on those communities. And the way it um, worked out until the um, until the 16th century was really that these these foreign or expat Muslims, typically Arabs and Persians, are the ones we find most prominently in the in the sources, inscriptions, and literary sources, that they. Um, were the the wealthy merchants, the ones who were involved in the transoceanic commerce. They distinguished themselves by different dress, different food, this different economic profile. And the local Muslims, the Mapalas, tended to be more small-time local traders. And so these, these foreign Muslims were not just the commercial elite, the economic elite, but also the religious elite. 
And that is something that is um, bolstered um, through uh, stories such as the, the Cheruman Paramal legend. Mm-hmm. And how did caste play a factor into this? Not only between, let's say, these different groups of Muslims that are ethnically located, but also between Muslims and, you know, the dominant Hindu society who have their own structures of caste and they're negotiating uh, Brahmins and things like that. Because caste was an important theme that you had throughout the book, which I thought was quite fascinating. Yeah, I think it's um, it's generally said that uh, during the medieval period, the caste system was practiced most rigorously in in Kerala. Probably more strict, it was more strictly enforced in Kerala than probably in any other part of India during this period. So it was a huge um, element in how um, society works, how the economy worked, how politics worked in um, this part of South India. Um, so on the one hand, there was the challenge of how do you accommodate Islam within the caste system? And here we see that actually something like the Cheruman Paramal story also allowed Brahmins to incorporate the presence of Islam within their own um, uh, legendary understanding of the region's past and the region's society. So we find the Cheruman Parama legend that we see in these Arabic texts um, reproduced very similarly in um, Hindu texts um, of this period, as well as later periods, um, where the same story is, is reproduced about the, uh, the Cheruman Paramal's conversion to Islam. The only twist is that in, in those, in the Hindu narratives, he didn't convert to Islam because he saw the, the truth of that faith, but rather because he had committed a sin that was so grave that there was no forgiveness within Hinduism. So he thought out a more forgiving um, faith. But otherwise, it's, it's reproduced very closely, including the role of those Arab Muslims who he sent to Kerala to propagate the mosques, the location of those first mosques that were um, founded by these by these Arab sides and so forth. So we see an incorporation of Islam within the overall um, Hindu society that was very much dominated by um, the caste system. And then in terms of um, caste also, of course, played a really important role in terms of conversion, conversion to Islam. So during this period, from the limited evidence we, we have, it's, it, it appears that conversion happened from very specific caste groups, um, usually castes that were associated with seaborne occupations, such as um, fishing or lighterage in the port cities, um, uh, shipbuilding, things like this. And this seems to have been tolerated, at times even encouraged by local rulers as a way to attract these Muslim merchants and attract the, um, the the trade that they could ultimately tax from which they finance themselves. And so here the overall political picture is once again important that the Malabar coast was divided into these different um, states, each of which was centered on a, on a port city, and they were all competing with one another over the revenues of this 
um, very, very lucrative pepper trade, which was dominated by Muslims. So they were competing with one another to attract these Muslim merchants and um, provide an, an infrastructure for them that they could flourish and prosper and seek out their port cities. Now, that's not to say that these processes of, of conversion and of kind of the integration of Islam within um, Kerala society were uncontested. So we also have stories that I described in the book where they were actively contested. But it seems that overall, the economic expediency won out that rulers protected um, the, the interests of the Muslim merchants um, because they were so important for their for their revenues. Mm. And part of then the growth of also Islam, you're, aside from the conversion piece that you um, discussed right now is attached to particular caste communities, was also then intermarriage practices and um, slavery. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how these pieces were important to kind of the growth and of and growth and also the construction of Islam that was taking place at this time. Yeah, so, yeah, like like everywhere um, in the Indian Ocean, intermarriage was an important um, vector in, in, the, um, in the emergence and evolution of, of Islam in these coastal societies, especially in, in port cities. And um, we, we can trace this a little bit through... Um, syncretic social practices. So for instance, we have some of these Mapala communities, not all, but some in parts of Kerala practiced uh, matrilineality, mm. which was then associated with certain um, Hindu castes, again, just very specific ones. But this kind of shows the, the overlap between these communities, which of course is, is very, very unusual within Islamic history, having um, matrilineal communities. There are a few examples, but um, uh, otherwise, um, yeah, as, as, as you well know, uh, you know, Islam is overwhelmingly focused on um, patrilineality and, and patriarchy um, historically during this period. So uh, this is a very um, unusual, but also really interesting case study um, in which we can trace this, which um, it's, it's incredibly difficult. The same with with slavery. Um, we have individual um, uh, examples of slaves who became very important uh, Muslim merchants on the Malabar coast. Um, we can trace them mainly through inscriptions, especially mosque inscriptions, when they um, either paid for the construction of a mosque or they bought the, um, the, the land for the mosque or they paid for a renovation or extension of a mosque, that their names are recorded. And sometimes um, it is suggested by, by their name. Sometimes it's, it's made explicit that this was a, a former slave. So we can see how slavery was, a, um, and of course we know that from other sources as well, was an important vector in these um, uh, Muslim networks of that of that period, but it's it's really difficult to trace kind of beyond these um, kind of individual snapshots. Is that because one of the things that you do highlight, and especially in your discussion of um, slavery, um, is that it's an area of study that hasn't been done a lot, and is that partly because of the um, inaccessibility of sources? 
or um, text that you have around it? Or is it, I um, kind of wanted to know more about why it is an area of study, especially in the context like this, where we know these stories do exist, that it's not something that has been discussed more. That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> well, in your book as well, right? Um, you kind of say that this is something um, that hasn't been um, studied. And I think there are some cases, like in the context of American Islam, people do talk about it. It is an important reality of Islam in the North American context. Um, but I do tend to find also in the context of, you know, for South Asia, um, it's not the case. And you may not have an answer to it, but I was wondering um, if you thought there was any particular reason for that or. Um, I think it's probably probably both. Yeah. Um, I think I was especially because I'd started the project. Um, you know, it had grown out of a project on the trans-Saharan slave trade, mm. so I was always especially on the lookout for any any indication, any hint that a person um, might be a slave, might have owned slaves. Um, and as you say in the book, I, I, I find um, a, a number of examples of that, uh, but I think I mined it um, pretty well. So it's not a it's not a lot of sources. Mm-hmm. It would be very difficult to to kind of turn it into a study um, on on slavery or on the slave trade. Um, but I think slavery, of course, was not only part of these of these Muslim networks, but of course we also know um, of uh, uh, you know, Jewish traders using slaves. In, in this in in similar ways and of course in, in Kerala society or generally in, in South Indian societies um, that were different forms of of um, unfree labor including um, forms of chattel slavery practice in different forms at different times um, which is not something and and you're quite right in pointing that out that has been studied much and certainly something um, I, I would hope to see to see more on in the future, um, not necessarily through a specific focus on Islam, though that is certainly an important part of the story, but a kind of more general um, South Indian um, uh, frame. Mm. Um, I want to pick up on an, uh, a piece that you had mentioned earlier, um, discussing um, the role of mosques. And I think you use mosques and the architectural features of mosques as um, an important way to get across the point that you're trying to make of these both local and global interactions that are taking place across the transoceanic networks you're talking about. So how do you see mosques as uh, playing a significant role um, in this network that you're engaging in, how they're both localized, but also reflecting a, a global reality that it's come from? Yeah, so I started looking at uh, or, or mapping the the earliest historic mosques we can find in the region as kind of a proxy for the establishment of merchant communities. So it was a way in which I thought I could map how the Muslim trade evolved on the coast by seeing when mosques were founded in different port cities. Um, but I think the the role of mosques within these networks goes far beyond them being a you know, a religious space for for Muslim congregations. I think the mosques had very tangible and and very crucial um, commercial functions, social functions, and political functions. And that was especially um, 
important, I think, coming back to the idea of, 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 of a caste-defined um, society in which, um, in which things like uh, the sharing of food and social interactions, everything um, was very much focused on specific sites and around um, fixed structured. So as I said, when I was speaking about the slaves, that um, because uh, Malabar was not part of the Dal Islam, it didn't have a Muslim ruler at any point during this period, these mosques were financed privately by merchants. So they were an investment by these Muslim merchants in these places, and they were both a literal investment the purchase of the land, the construction of the mosque. But I think there was a, a, a figurative investment, right? You're expecting a future for Islam in this place, and that's why you're building a congregational mosque there. But because it was outside the Dal Islam, you, of course, had to negotiate to establish these mosques. So you needed the permission of the local ruler. Um, we see that in... Um, um, we don't actually have copper plate grants for the Muslim communities, but we have some um, some other epigraphs that show this process of land being gifted or permission being given to construct a mosque in a particular place. We also know that this was, again, a process that was at times um, contested, especially by the Brahmin elites. Um, so the... What makes, I think, these mosques uh, special and interesting and illuminating, why I talk about them as, as monsoon mo mosques, as kind of these manifestations of this phenomenon of monsoon Islam that the, that the book is about, is that they were very much designed to fit into the sacred landscape of Malabar. So if you look at these mosques, they look almost exactly like um, Hindu temples or royal palaces. And those were really the only structures that um, had certain, that were allowed to be built in this way. I talk about the roofs a lot. Um, the, the use of tiles on the roof was a special symbolic privilege that only Hindu temples, royal palaces, and um, these, these mosques were allowed to, um, to feature. So there was this negotiation which on the one hand, why were mosques built in this way? Why did they look like Hindu temples? Well, on the one hand, you don't want to build something that um, is jarring, that makes perhaps certain claims about a new era, a new style that might be seen as contesting the sovereignty, um, the preeminence of the established Hindu elites. So there's that sense of, of fitting in and of kind of architectural negotiation. But it might also play into um, what you mentioned about conversion, that um, new Muslims uh, might have expected sacred buildings to look a certain way and building mosques in the style of temples was a way to, to, um, to navigate this, um, this divide. Mm, yeah. Um, and the other space that you also talk about, um, or um, kind of, because you situate in discussing the role of religious authority and the construction of the law early on in the book, and towards the end of the book, you also discuss 
uh, the role of Sufis and saintly figures and Sufi shrines, right? Um, so what role did, um, you know, Sufi saints perhaps or um, text or spaces have in the midst of all these other spaces that we've talked about already? Islam was obviously a really important medium for the translation of Islam across um, maritime Asia, across monsoon Asia. And for Kerala in particular, it has often been assumed that certain families who are associated with specific Sufi orders um, were really dominant and played a key role in this. And I was able to work with many of these families. They're known locally as Tangal families who who opened their libraries and opened their homes um, and opened their networks to me and were incredibly generous and supportive of my project. Um, but I found that their presence there and their, their very important and prominent role is really an 18th century phenomenon um, that we can't trace back and shouldn't just project onto the earlier history of the region. So if we look at Sufism in this in this earlier period, we find associations with different orders and we find a, a much more um, complex and perhaps at times, I would argue, conflictual relationship between the local religious elite, the ulama, and Sufism. So on the one hand, we find there their involvement in, in Sufi orders. We find an important role of Sufi tarikas in, um, in, in the propagation of trade networks. They were you know, usually active in trade in, in some form or another. And some of uh, Malabar's medieval ulama are identified as Sufis and have shrines, such as the shrine of, of Zainal de Maktoum in, in Kochi. Um, but then in the literature produced by these um, uh, Muslim scholars in the 16th century when we really have um, kind of a, uh, a good corpus um, of their, their texts. Um, there is this tension on the one hand, uh, approval and even reverence for classic Sufi saints such as Ibn Arabi, but there's also a strong sense of suspicion um, against the uninitiated falling prey to misunderstandings of his teachings and mm -hmm. Sufism in general. So these, these ulama and their families, they, what they really insist on is that without proper theological training, um, many of them, of course, would have spent time in, in Mecca and, and Cairo and other centers of, of Islamic learning. So without the kind of training that, that they had been privileged to enjoy and without their guidance, really ordinary Muslims, and I imagine that what they're thinking about here especially are, are Mapala Muslims, local Muslims, um, they are not meant to dabble in Sufism because otherwise they could very easily fall into um, heresy or apostasy. Um, so the question is, who is, who are these kind of texts addressed to? And it's not really easy to answer because these are, um, you know, these are written in Arabic um, they are um, somewhat uh, advanced, make complex theological arguments, um, but at the same time, they seem to be directed against a form of, of popular, presumably syncretic um, Sufism that perhaps was seen as, as, as a threat 
to the traditional role of these um, Sayyids who had made up both the, the commercial elite and the religious elite. So just like the mosque itself, I think the Sufi shrine too was a site of um, negotiation, but also a site of contestation in the development of Islam um, on the Malabar coast. And it's it seems to be that it's a contestation of orthodoxy and tradition, right? Even your discussion around law, it seemed to be the same case where there was like an orthodoxy or normativity that needed to be preserved. Um, but these spaces and these networks suggest another kind of negotiation and contestation, which is really fascinating. I think the we, it can't just be reduced to kind of on the one hand, you have the orthodox ulama and then you have kind of the more um, popular, syncretic Sufis. Um, that's kind of the story that I was kind of a little bit expecting mm -hmm. to find, being primed by um, some of the literature on this. Um, but I, I think the story here is more complicated because certainly the, the ulama themselves um, were... Uh, extensively engaged in the study of, of Sufism, um, perhaps what we might call kind of high Sufism, um, um, which wasn't necessarily Indic, but much more likely to be uh, you know, Persian or, or Arabic. Um, and then themselves became revered as kind of Syed Sufi saints um, or some, some members of their, of their family. At the same time, they seem to be pushing back against um, the popularization of Sufi ideas. And of course, we only have their perspective on this, right? So we don't have kind of the, the opposite perspective on this. So it's very difficult to see what they were actually pushing against. Was this something real? Um, was this just a straw man they were setting up to extol their own virtue and learning? Or was this something they were that was actually... Um, a threat to their to their standing, and I think the historical context here is is important though because this was happening as I said these these texts that we have that really allow us a window into this are from the 16th century, and during the 16th century, um, the the Muslim communities on the Malabar coast underwent a major shock and major transformation. This was in um, in reaction to the Portuguese. Who, of course, arrived at the at the very beginning of the um, uh, of the 16th century um, in in the early voyages, and almost immediately singled out Muslims as the targets of their aggression and attacks. This probably had very tangible commercial reasons, right? They wanted to take over the spice trade, which was dominated by the Muslims, especially the. Um, what they called the the, the mm -hmm. Moors of Mecca, right? The, the Arab Muslims, and um, but of course also uh, you know, religious reasons. The Portuguese had long, you know, through the history of the Reconquista and their involvement in the Maghreb and various kinds. So there was a long history of enmity, um, especially on the Iberian Peninsula, but of course, as you know, across um, European society, enmity against um, Islam and Muslims. So what happened in the 16th century? Um, faced with this aggression, many of the Arab Muslims and Persian Muslims left the Malabar coast, relocated to other port cities outside the Portuguese purview, you know, continued to be very um, prominently involved in the, in the spice trade. But on the Malabar coast itself, 
um, mapillas assumed a much more prominent role. They assumed a more prominent role economically, um, taking over the trade in a way that the Portuguese labeled as either smuggling or, or piracy, but that it was really um, you know, trading pepper outside of the of the Portuguese networks. They um, became much more prominent as uh, as religious leaders and as political leaders. So it's in the 16th century for the first time that we see efforts to kind of conceive of a pan-Malabari Muslim community, thinking about Muslim communities in these different port cities up and down the Malabar coast as united, as a single community, which should be under a single religious and political leadership to counter the threat of the Portuguese. So perhaps some of these texts that are... Um, dealing with this, as you say, this, this tension between orthodoxy and Sufism must be also seen in the context of the position of the traditional ulama being um, being under threat um, in, a, in, a, in a much wider sense than just the threat from Sufism. Mm. Um, I want to turn to some of the points that you make in your conclusion as we wrap up our time together. And one of the things that you're calling for in the conclusion is to shift from thinking about this kind of space that we've been talking about as trade diasporas to trade communities. And you also were mentioning or talking about communities right now. So I wonder if you could pick up on that and say a little bit more about why this is important in terms of your larger work um, that you're trying to do um, in your scholarship. Yeah, I think the the story of, of Monsoon Islam, as I see it, and as I say, I think this is a much broader Indian Ocean phenomenon of which Malabar is um, one case study, one uh, good example. Uh, this story is really about uh, a tension on the one hand between um, global trends, right, being involved in these transoceanic networks of trade, um, being part of the Islamic cosmopolis, these very mobile um, individuals and and groups, and then on the other hand the pressure of localization, right, of fitting into these societies, um, being minority communities, having to negotiate a place um, for themselves and for Islam more generally within these specific local settings. So I think it's this tension that really shaped monsoon Islam between uh, the global and the local. And I think what we what, what is the outcome of that process, of that tension, is the transformation from what we might call diaspora to communities, right? It's a, it's a process that ultimately results in an, in an integration um, so that now these terms of foreign Muslims, local Muslims, they don't make sense in terms of Say Kerala society today, and in fact, are quite quite dangerous, right? In in, in terms of positing Islam as something um, something external, something not of the mm. of the society. Um, when in fact, that is the the story that the book tells of how how that integration happened and what drove it, and that this. You know, in the in the case of monsoon Islam, that this was not something that was really driven by sultans. It wasn't a kind of coordinated political project. Um, it wasn't done by by scholars or even Sufis. I think really the key agents in this were 
ordinary merchants, and I call them ordinary because you know they were not representatives of state power, um, they didn't have any you know, special theological training, but I think it's really them who were the, the most active, the dominant agents in these processes of negotiation and integration. And I think as merchants, they were often quite pragmatic, right? Their, their, their raison d'etre, their ultimate purpose for being there was to do business, to, to, to make money. And that doesn't mean that they, um, you know, that, that, uh, that anything goes when it comes to money, but that this, this transmission cannot be understood without thinking about the context of people interacting in the marketplace, buying and selling, um, finding common grounds through, um, through negotiation in a very tangible and direct sense. And I found that very interesting, especially as in your conclusion, you included a, a tweet by Prime Minister um, <laughs> of India, of um, Modi, and the use of let's um, the masjid, the Cherman masjid, as kind of this um, historical piece. But it's also been, you know, so important in terms of the discussions that are happening in, in India, particularly, and the place of Muslims and the minoritization process that continues to happen. So, even as a historian, a lot of this work is um, it's it's still seen today, right? So, I wonder if that was something you were thinking about when you were writing the book. It seemed like you were because you included a tweet by him, but yeah, and it's it, it, it's a very interesting process. Um, clearing the copyright of a tweet by the prime minister's office of of india but so this this <laughs> so this was a tweet made um in in 2016 as modi was visiting saudi arabia on his kind of global whirlwind tour to to declare india open for business and and drum up um foreign investment and trade so he tweeted a kind of uh, a, a golden model of one of these uh, monsoon mosques. In fact, the monsoon mosque, uh, known as the Charaman Juma Masjid. So after this Charaman Paramal figure, the legendary convert king who we've been talking about. So his mosque, the mosque named after him, which is um, often called uh, the the first mosque in India, um, which again looks not like your typical mosque. So it doesn't have the the, the minaret or the dome. Right, it's much more in the local sc- style. And he tweeted this as a it was a gift he was giving to the Saudi king, um, which he said was symbolic of active trade relations between India and Saudi Arabia since ancient times. And so this is an interesting, um, a, a interesting use of uh, a mosque in India, which otherwise um, the BJP might see as, as symbolic of something else. Uh, but which is here instrumentalized uh, to highlight um, to, to to just solely focus on the economic dimension. Right, this is symbolic of trade relations, but it's not symbolic, say, of the place of Islam in India, something like this. So perhaps this is um, you know going back to my intellectual journey. This you know is kind of the the reductionist you know purely economic history. Uh, view with which I started the project, but of which then, you know, learning about and and, and studying the sources and, and thinking more deeply disabused me of this kind of reductionist um, uh, approach in which um, a mosque, right, can become a symbol only of trade, um, which 
on the face of it is, 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 a, is a ridiculous statement to make. Yeah. Um, I have to say it's, it's an amazing book and I congratulate you on it. And um, I, there'll be a lot of conversations around it. Um, I want to ask what you're working on next or are you taking a breather? Or if there's anything you're doing now that we could look forward to? Um, I'm going back to uh, a project that I published on a little bit um, right after I came out of my PhD and which I now have the opportunity to pick up again, which is about um, the intersection of piracy, um, maritime sovereignty, and trade in the pre-modern Indian Ocean. Um, it's animated by uh, a long-held view in the literature that it was only Europeans who realized the potential of sea power in the Indian Ocean, that um, Indian rulers and more broadly uh, Indian Ocean rulers didn't realize the political potential of the sea until Europeans demonstrated it to them, until they started building maritime empires. And so what my project um, seeks to show, using different case studies from the Persian Gulf, from, from India, from, from Southeast Asia, is that uh, sea routes and ocean space had been very actively um, contested and also been part of the political imagination for a very long time in the Indian Ocean. And in fact, that when the Europeans came in and imposed their own vocabulary of, of sovereignty and jurisdiction, that this wasn't something unfamiliar or completely surprising to um to Asian rulers and, and Asian elites um, because it actually fitted into a, a, a long-term pattern that was, I think, global, um, neither limited to Europe nor to Asia. That sounds fantastic, and I look forward to it. Thank you again so much for your time today. I really appreciated discussing your book with you, and congratulations again. Thank you so much. It was my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. <laughs>